0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Well, let me say, I am absolutely a blessed individual this morning, and all I can say is, whoo! Uh, The singing this morning was great, and I'm especially blessed to be among you as people. And I hate to embarrass anybody, but sometimes, I'm going to say by the providence of God, I'm put in a certain position in a building where things are great, and this young lady right here can sing, folks. I'm going to tell you what, and I have gotten up and moved during meetings when I would hear someone on the other side that could help insist me and being on fire about God. And so I've moved. I didn't have to move. I just picked the right spot. So I blame God for that, uh, but I'm glad to be here. And I know there were so many voices joined together. Obviously, that is what we're doing in that. That's why we all participate in that act of worship as we do. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. That was our scripture reading a moment ago, and that's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time. I am not a preacher that likes to Flip or flop when I'm preaching. I like that if you can find the scripture we're talking about, you can see everything right there on the same page. Makes things easy. It cuts down on frustration if you're not someone who's very familiar with where the books are located and different things. I think it minimizes some of that. And it definitely helps me because I'm not very smart. And I can't always remember those scripture references and where I want to go next in that. So while you turn there, I want to tell you another story, okay? And after hearing, if you were here in the last hour, if you heard the first story from my days at the Philadelphia Church of Christ, you're about to hear another, and you're probably going to call me a liar after this one, and I wish that I were, but here's what happened. I was at the Philadelphia Church of Christ. This was 2010, so we had advanced about four years from the previous story, and I was preaching and teaching, or teaching, I should say, on Wednesday night through the book of Romans, and we had gotten down to Romans chapter 10. And the verse for that night, I don't do the Passover on anything, so I was just next verse up, next verse I teach. And the book and chapter and verse that we approached that particular night were Romans 10 and verse 13. If you're familiar with that, here's what it says. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so that was the first verse of the night, and so I chose that night. I said, you know, we read that verse, or I read that verse along with them, and I asked the question, I said, Is that a true statement? That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I was in an adult Bible class, okay? And I didn't get an answer. And I asked the question again: Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that true? And someone said, no, it's not true. I said, I'm afraid it is. It is true, and I'm sure that it is true because we just read it. It was right there on the page. And that's why we're going to begin tonight discussing that verse in its context. So I then in turn asked another follow-up question, a very simple one. I said, okay, if it is true, and it is, is that all that we have to do to be saved? Now I got a universal answer then. Many people spoke up and said, no, that is not all we have to do to be saved. There's much more than that. I said, okay, then what is it that we do have to do in order to be saved? And the number was less, but there were a number that were throwing up hands and one just commented out of the group, uh, probably like Peter would have, and he said, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And I know that we had even done that in a Pewpacker class, and there was a little song that went with it, so it was easy that there were many there who knew that answer. And I said, that is exactly right. So when we read or we understand what goes along with that information, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, we know that's true, but how do we prove it? You see, when we contact someone who pulls their Bible out and says, Romans 10, 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and they accuse that that is all we have to do to be saved, it is our duty to then give an answer, the reason of hope that is within us with meekness and fear, and to show them in Scripture as well what all we have to do to be saved. I said, where do we find that? There was silence. I said, okay. Let's start in the beginning. Where in Scripture are we taught that we must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Not a word. I said, we're in the book of Romans. We're at verse 13. Would anyone mind reading for me verse 17? Someone read it. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I said, then I would circle that verse. That's one. I then in turn asked, assuming the answer I would get, I said, can anyone tell me the next step we would go through here, believe? Can someone give us a passage to which we can go to to prove the fact that we ought to believe? There was again silence. No one spoke up. I said, well, what about the book of John? What about John chapter 8? I heard pages turning and finally someone scrolled down and said, "Uh, are you talking about verse 24? I said, that'll work, read it. Except you believe that I am He. You shall die in your sins. Okay? What about repentance? Where in Scripture can we prove that repentance is somehow connected with salvation? I heard silence. What about Luke? What about Luke 13? What about verse 3? We read it together. Mark your Bible. Hear, believe, repent, confess. What about confession? If there's so much more to do to be saved than simply calling on the name of the Lord, and we understand what that means, which we were about to discern and decide, but if there is more, what about confession? There was silence. And I suggested that we were in Romans. We were in chapter 10. A good night, could we not remember what we talked about last week? And we read verses 9 and 10. What about baptism? Must we be baptized to be saved? Yes, they say. Where do we find that? Someone said, I think Jesus said it. My heart rate and my blood pressure was already out the top of the roof. And I said, I think he did too. And we read a number of scriptures, one from his very mouth, recorded as Mark does in Mark 16 16. Now, all of you nod your heads. You're in agreement. I knew that. I knew that. But friends, I was on an island. It's a mission field. You didn't know that. It is. I didn't know that. I in turn then concluded the class shortly thereafter with all that I could muster to do. I walked out in the foyer. I caught one of my elders. He was been teaching the teens in the back room. And I caught him and I said, if you don't mind, I need to talk with you and for just a moment. That's my two elders. I pulled them in the classroom. One thing I hadn't told you yet is my elder was in thy class. My elder. And, and I, I was in tears at that point. And I said, I don't know what else to do in a class of over 60 adults. We couldn't get past the gospel plan of salvation in 40 minutes because we didn't know. And Burrell spoke up and he said, I wish I had been in there. I could have helped. It's my elder. He didn't speak a word. He finally stuttered for a moment. And he said, I'm sorry, Jim. I can see you're upset. But I thought it was a trick question. And I said, the first question could have been taken as a trick. But not the next five. And then he said this. He said, well, I'll be honest. I didn't have my blue card. You see, we as members used to have blue cards that we kept in the front of our Bibles, reference cards, and they gave us a guide in Scripture to and you may have one, and God bless you if you do. It is a tremendous help, a wonderful tool for memory and reference. But he said, I didn't have my blue card. I went home that night, and I called Brother Harold Davidson. And I told him what had happened, and I told him, I said, my plan in the morning is to go ahead and call the elders and ask to meet with them tomorrow afternoon, and I'm going to resign. Because I don't know what else to do. And he said, No. He said, What they proved to you tonight is how much they need you there. And you better stay. And I learned that night we need the basics. We need to spend time teaching and preaching and sitting down with our Bibles and asking ourselves the questions that come down to the simplest things in life, including that, and especially if nothing more than that, one who is Jesus. That's more important than all. That's foundational there. But on the top of that resting, on top of that absolutely, we need to know what we must do to be saved and be able to share that with those around us. And I'm afraid the reason some congregations are not growing, one is fear, one is anxiety, one is a lack of boldness. We have to discuss this evening, this afternoon. But one of them comes down to just pure misunderstanding or pure ignorance. And not knowing. And that's not an accusation against any of you because I saw your heads nodding. But if at any point, being honest with yourself, if I ask as I illustrated that and told that true story, if at any point you said, well, I don't know, let's sit down and find out. We've got to get to the basics. I mentioned in the last hour of the series, I had entitled What We Believe and Why, and all the things that were discussed, the essentiality of baptism, uh, standing against the faith-only doctrine, the use of instrumental music and such, uh, the oneness of the Lord's church, all those subjects involved. Those are all wonderful things. And there's a point in me, which I thought was, as Barry invited me for this topic, I thought we need to just cover a lot of bases, just, just, just machine gun things to see how many we can cross and cover. And I thought, you know what? None of them matter unless we can first agree on certain things and those things are found in Ephesians chapter 4. You see, unless someone understands and agrees that there is Ephesians 4 and verse 4, one body. Unless someone understands and agrees there is one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father of all who is above all and in you all, unless they understand that, there is no need in spinning my wheels and leaving dust behind In a life of someone, if they don't understand that, to try to talk to them about instrumental music. Or try to mention to them the the need of baptism being essential because if they don't understand there is one Lord, they don't need to be baptized. If they don't put God the Father above all and in all and through them all, they're not a candidate for salvation. And so this may be a peculiar text to you, and I'll admit the subject matter of Ephesians 4, write this in your notes so that I can be quoted, the subject matter of Ephesians 4 is the subject of unity. And it's written in a context of people in a church in Ephesus and others around it. By the way, it's a secular letter, so it's not just Ephesus. It's been circulated outside of that. Don't have time to get to it. But it's being written to a church and churches or groups of people in which there was some disagreement about these facts. In which there were some who were saying, oh sure, there's one body, but can there possibly be only one baptism? Is there only one spirit? Is there only one hope? It's about unifying their hearts as a foundational and a preparational part of establishing themselves that they may grow. Remember what the Hebrews writer said, put this in your margin Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 to 14 I'm going to half paraphrase but there he spoke of a time when he wanted to speak things but they were too hard for them to understand as of yet and he said there was a time when they ought to be teachers but he said that they had need that someone teach them again friends that's that's the life of all of us If we're honest, and I don't care if you're an elder, if you're, I think you were a deacon, uh, someone, Bible class teachers, I know I don't care who you are, what you are, what you do. There's a time in my life when I have to be reminded of those things that are at the base. When even though this scripture is encouraging people, Hebrews 5, verse 11 and 14, to go past the milk and get to the meat or the strong food, the solid food, even though that's the case, friends, you've got to drink the milk to swallow the food. Even though Peter, recording along the same subject lines, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 said, as newborn babes desire the sincere miracle of the word. Watch this phrase though that they may grow thereby. That's what we need to do. So let's look at this passage. I had the brother a moment ago to read the entirety of it, verses 1 through uh, 6. Actually, the entirety of the context is really verses 1 through 14. We won't have time to get to that, but because I know that up front, uh, I'll give you an outline. I'll give you two outlines, okay? Verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 4. You could call it the axiom. Does anyone know what the word axiom means? I tested this out on Austin Fowler, and he didn't know. I asked five or six preachers, they didn't know. You might know. Axiom is foundation, okay? So you can write axiom or you can write foundation. I just like to alliterate, I need another A to be honest. But we have in verses 1 to 3 the axiom. That is what's going on, what is the foundation, what are the principles such as that. We also have in that listed the attitudes. If you want to put another word with that, dispositions. Then we have in the latter part of this text, verses about 7 through 14-ish, we have the actions, or you might could interpret that in that sense as the intentions. What is this supposed to be accomplishing, that kind of. But let's discuss mainly that foundational section, which I told you wrong a moment ago, which is in verse four to six. So I just ruined your margins. Apologize. Mine are messed up too. So joined joined a bunch. Let's look at verses four to six and look at that foundational truth. He first says here there is but one body. One body. What is that body? Well, you and I know, we're Bible students, and matter of fact, much as we were doing in some cases at Philadelphia with a gospel plan of salvation, a page turn or two would accomplish that. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, I promise you I didn't flip or flop, but just flip once. Ephesians chapter 1 over in verses 22 and 23 says this, speaking of Jesus, that he hath put all things under his feet and gave himself to be the head over all things To the church. Watch the next phrase. Take the verse out of that. Pull the verse 23, mark it out, throw it out. To the church, comma, which is His body. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture of the New Testament, when you find references to the church, that is a reference as well, parallel to it, and the same as the body. When you find references to the body, that is a parallel and the same as the church. I want to simplify that. Why is it that the body would be a unifying and a fortifying and a foundational truth that we would need to know as a basic principle to build upon? Because the body is the unit of organization. Now this time we're going to alliterate with T-I-O-N, organization. That's what the body is. You examine 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on your own time. This Even this text gets to it to some point. You learn that the body, yes, has the head of Christ, but there are many members in that body. And although all those members are available, they are not the same. They all serve their own purpose. They all do their own thing. And we sometimes illustrate that as preachers. You know, the, the nose doesn't do what the big toe does, and, and such as that, and how that if any part of that body is, is injured or hurt or not functioning, that usually the rest of the body will come to rescue. And what's our favorite illustration? You get up in the night, you stump that I was I shouldn't have done that. You stump that toe. And what goes to rescue your entire body? And even though it's the toe that seemingly is the one that hurts, the rest of the body hurts for it. That's, that's the oldest illustrations. But the body of Christ is what it is. And I put a lot of is the organizational form that God saw fit. And He wants the body, the church, to gather together in many instances, today being only one of them, on the Lord's day, possessive. The Lord's church comes together on the Lord's day today. Because why? Because we need to be with the body. And if you're ever in a place in life where that doesn't feel uh, convenient for you or that doesn't feel comfortable for you or whatever. And by the way, I've been there when sin in my heart has been so deep I was ashamed to attend or whatever. Put that away. Because the body of Christ gets together. They are organized together. And the work that is done in the body of Christ, even as far as a congregational level at this place, riverbend on the sign, is that which works together. So within it, there is unity in itself. The body is the body of organization. But look at the next one out right there. He said, for there is one body. Next phrase there, I'm looking in verse 4 as well. There is one body. But then he goes on and says there also is one Spirit. One Spirit. Now, there's some argument as to what this is. I believe myself this is attending to or leaning toward the Holy Spirit. We might refer to Him as the Holy Ghost. Jesus, John chapter 13 to 16, referred to Him a number of times as the comforter, the parakaleo, the comforter that brings together, calls beside there. But the Holy Spirit is in some senses such a mysterious thing to us. Why is that? Because we're biblically ignorant sometimes. I've got the card to prove it with myself. And we tend to avoid it because it's so abused and so misunderstood that we as Christians, we give more credit to God the Father, more credit to the Son, not because we don't have respect or give homage to the Spirit, but because we just don't necessarily understand. When the Spirit of God being as important as the other persons of the Godhead, them being one, but personalities, you might see that, as the others. And just simply understanding it today, the Spirit represents the unity and the foundational principle of that of revelation. You know how blessed we are? We stand here in 2024. I had to think, and we open our leather-bound copies of the Bible that we have, and we read them in our own language, which has been translated from its original languages, which primarily consisted of Hebrew and the Old Greek, and the New. Some Aramaic phrases spoken of Jesus throughout. But we are blessed to read that, and we are blessed to have confidence and to know that this is the revelation of God. You familiar with what Paul told Timothy? First Timothy chapter, I'm blank. Four. Come on now. Don't do me that. Yeah. All Scripture is given by the inspiration, huh? 2 Timothy 4. That's, that's, something was off. <laughs> See, you better check your preaching. You better read for yourself. All Scripture is given by the... Yeah, inspiration. You don't have your blue card either. Inspiration of God. And His profitable. watch this, for doctrine. King James speak, old King James. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why is that, Paul? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly or thoroughly furnished unto what? All good works. Peter would say this book contains the things, all things pertaining to both life and godliness. That is to be godlike. And it's the spirit of revelation that brings us to that point. Friends, if we didn't have this book revealed as it is, inspired of God as it was, to have those men, those penmen, particularly of the New Testament, but old included as well, to sat down and to pen the words, I'm assuming on scroll and and quill as they did, to have it to be revealed unto us and translated and brought forth that we could understand it, we would absolutely be lost. A good friend of mine described it this way, as lost as a goose in a rainstorm. Foundational principle number one, the body of organization. Foundational principle number two, the body, or if you will, the spirit of revelation. But read on. It also says this, I'm in verse four as well. And we are called in one hope, H O P E, of your calling. What does hope mean? What is hope? We oftentimes define hope as being desire coupled with expectation. Austin Fowler, talk out loud. What is my favorite food on planet Earth? Pizza. (laughs) Boy, we had a good one yesterday. Thank you. I like all kind of food. Most of it is junk food, but I love pizza. If I said to myself, when I get home from Riverbend this afternoon, when I roll in at 4.35 o'clock, if I said to myself, I hope and pray that we have pizza for supper, not dinner at my house, it's supper. We're about to eat dinner, you may call it lunch. But if I said, I hope we have pizza for supper, you know what? I ought not hope that. That'd be my desire, but it ain't my expectation because my wife is allergic to yeast and she's not going to have pizza in our house. So I get it everywhere else. Hope. But that's not this hope. This is a hope that is tied to the foundational principle of expectation. What do you expect to get from living a faithful life as a child of God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not looking at God presumptuously to say, you know what I've done, you know what you owe me now. But friends, we ought to have a hope. Jesus is the anchor of that hope. And we ought to have a hope that allows us to know that if I'm obedient and faithful to this book and to the life of Jesus and to exemplifying and to magnifying and to glorifying Him in the best way that I can, I have a hope of a home of God in heaven. And that is a promise. That is a reservation with a confirmation that comes with it. Foundational principle. So, if I'm going to sit down and teach someone and try to bring them back to the basics, I would love to let them know there's one body, organization. There's one spirit of revelation. There's one hope, in that case, of whatever I just said that I can't remember. You wrote it down, expectation. Read on, verse 5. One Lord. One Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, depending on depends a lot on what testament you're reading primarily, but also what part of the testaments you are reading. There are emphasis in times when you read the Old Testament, and the L-O-R-D, Lord, is referring to God the Father. There are times in the Old Testament, and even more so in the New, when you read the word L-O-R-D, Lord, and it's a reference to Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God. And you make a little bit of differentiation between the two, but you understand the, the unity between them as well, so you respect them the same. But nonetheless, when you think about the Lord, L-O-R-D, Lord, I'm most mindful of several accounts, but one that comes to mind is a time when the Apostle Paul, or Saul, I should say, was traveling on the road to Damascus. And a great light came before him. He was struck down to the ground. He was blinded, and he was approached by something. I'm quoting him probably at that point. Something. Something. He wasn't so sure of, but what did he say? Who art thou, Lord? What are you saying, Paul? You're my master right now. I'm at your ever bidding. I'm here to serve you. What we know about him is when he was instructed to go on into the city, he met with Ananias, he was instructed and reminded of what he must do. He was immediately baptized to be saved. For the remission of sins. And guess what he happened to do? He happened to call on the name of the Lord that day through obedience. What's the Lord? Here's your word: coronation. Coronation. So what's the word coronation? Again, I like to alliterate it, but I struggled for that. It means crown him. Crown him. I mentioned 1 Peter 3:15 a moment ago. Sanctify the Lord your God in your heart. The old American standard, 1901 says, make Christ your Lord. Put Him at the top. Number next, foundational truth. There's but one faith. One faith. Two ways the faith is used in the Bible. One is what we might call or some refer to as the interpersonal faith, the faith that we have. Trust, reliance, belief. The other one is the faith, which is a reference to the whole culmination of the Bible, basically. Particularly the gospel at its core. There's the faith. But for memory's sake and for allowing us to understand that, you look at the faith, I would put beside that word, the word declaration. You see, they had to be in unity to declare the same thing. Remember the Apostle Paul, he opened the letter to the Corinthians. He got down long about verse 10. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. No, that's chapter 12. He didn't say that. Man, I'm struggling today. Uh, he said uh, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment, that you speak the same thing. That's what the faith is. And some people say, or they'll ask you sometimes, they'll approach you and say, Oh, what faith are you? I'm not sure how to answer that other than that one. They mean by that, where do you worship? What's your quote-unquote denomination? What faith are you? It's the declaration that becomes the foundation. Next one, we've got to hurry. There's also one Baptism. <coughs> One baptism. What is baptism? Well, if you do your studies in the New Testament, you're going to find a number of baptisms that exist. There's a baptism of fire, of suffering, a baptism uh, that was of John, there was a baptism of uh, the Holy Spirit, there's a number of those, but the baptism spoken of and made reference to here is a baptism that is used for the washing of our sins. Allowing us to step into Christ. You know, all those other steps we mentioned in the beginning here. Believer, repent, confess. All going unto, in the direction of, unto, approaching the door of. This one being into. We are baptized into His body. We are baptized, therefore, into the church. We are baptized in order to have our sins to be remitted. What is that? Baptism is a foundational truth. Of initiation. You ever been a part of a club when you was a kid? We had a lot of clubs, especially in school in the backyard. You had to come come to the fort in the woods and join the club. We never did the blood brothers thing. We was all scared of that, but you had to be initiated sometimes. And you cannot be inside of the Lord's church without being baptized into it. Number next goes on to add to that verse 6 for there's one God, he's in detail about this one, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all what is that? the foundational basic principle of origination Friends, if you're ever sitting down with someone and you would hope to study the Bible with them, you would hope to teach them, you would hope to have them, as I like to describe it, as being convinced, convicted, and converted. If you're ever doing that in a personal Bible study, maybe it's to help a friend or a family member or maybe a stranger on the street, who knows, but you're doing what God would will you to do and to carry out that commission of the world and you're teaching in order to ultimately baptize them and following that. If you're ever doing that and you've got anybody that looks at you and says, I don't know that there even is a God, you better start somewhere else. Or they say, I believe in God, but I also believe in many gods. You've got to back up. It's time to punt. There is but one God. And He is the origination of all. So I'm going in Scripture, you know where I would go, where you're going. In the beginning, God, see how I went, God, God created the heavens and the earth. What else do we need to know? At that point, that's it. I don't know exactly why. It would be a guess as to why God inspired these words to be penned other than these are foundational basic truths that help to involve us with not only unity with one another but especially be unified with God. I don't know how and why these are in order, although to me they were somewhat logical in the way and the means that they went to. But I know this, the whole text came down to the final idea of knowing there is but one God, the Father. And that one God, the Father, ought to be over or above all, through all, and in you all. You got God in you today. You say, well, I'm afraid to admit if I do or don't. Is that another trick question? You don't if. You don't if you don't understand already about the organization of the body. you got to get it. You may not if you you fail to understand about the the revelation of the body of the Spirit. It can be easily overlooked if one doesn't understand the hope or the destination that lies ahead. It can be something easy to miss if in my life I'm at a point where I certainly don't understand the fact that Christ is brought to coronation. He's been crowned as my Lord. Absolutely missed in all these cases, including that declaration, that initiation, and certainly the origination of God. You're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. I would suggest to you a few things. One would be, I I would encourage you to spend time not just in that text, Ephesians chapter 4, 4 to 6, but not just taking it there, but taking that and just tracing all of those words and phrases back to where they belong. And you'll build within you a foundation that really, in essence, is not... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit. It's not. It's one Jesus. See, here's the thing. Paul said, "No other foundation can any man lay, than that which is lain, which is Jesus Christ." He didn't lay the foundation. He was it, and is it, and will always be it. We need to get back to the basics. If here this morning you're in agreement with those things, those biblical foundational principles, those axioms, then why not go ahead and step out and use a few of those principles found therein and expound on them and bring yourself to faith knowing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is God. Bring yourself to a point of being willing to not only as you're trusting him in faith, but be willing, therefore, to be willing to repent of your sins. You know, we've, we've got former lives, we've got past lives, and I say that in prayer that they will be. Confessing his name because of the words that he said there, as we recorded earlier, except you believe that I am he, Jesus, you die in your sins. Meaning they're not going anywhere. Be willing to repent. Confess his name, and, and I should have done it earlier. I hadn't. There's water up here. I ain't going to lie and say whether it's warm or not. I've been in a lot of places that it ain't. But it's good enough. You're invited. Put on Christ in baptism, have your sins to be washed away. And now you have committed yourself to the basics. You take that milk, you swallow hard, and you move toward the meat. And you become that teacher. So you can help and save the lost with this as your foundation and Jesus Christ as your cornerstone. The invitation is yours, an invitation song has been chosen. You're invited. While together we stand and as we sing.